Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis, and today's episode is a collection of interviews with speakers from the 28th NCVER conference, No Frills, held in Adelaide in July 2019. The theme of the 2019 conference was The Student Journey, Skilling for Life, and over the course of the next hour, you'll hear summaries of research and some suggestions for the vet sector to consider as it helps Australia adapt to the many challenges and changes facing the world of work. One thing that will become clear, however, is that while every student's journey is different, more and more research and discussion underlines the importance of workers becoming lifelong learners to enable them to grow and evolve with their jobs. And more than ever before, Australia will rely upon the vet sector to play a critical role in making this happen. We've long been aware there are many non-technical skills that make people employable. About 30 years ago, these were identified as the mayor key competencies, and more recently, they've been captured in the core skills for work developmental framework. But it seems there's a difference between identifying these skills and actually finding effective ways to apply this knowledge in the wild for real people transferring from job to job and industry to industry. Kate Perkins, Senior Research Fellow, Australian Council for Educational Research, or ASA, is co-author of the Core Skills for Work Developmental Framework, has led a consultancy undertaking change management programs around the world, and is deeply engaged in the VET sector, exploring ways learners can use vocational qualifications to crack the code, as it were, of what employers really want, especially when entering the aged and childcare sectors. Kate, what's an example of some of these core skills I'm referring to? Well, um, I could probably ask you the same question and I've asked people all over the world this and um, you know, they'll scratch their head for a second and they'll go things like, oh, problem solving, teamwork, communication, uh, oh, um, perhaps we could have some planning and organising and uh, creativity, can we have some entrepreneurship, we can, and, it get, and the list goes on. Uh, those sorts of skills that uh, we know they exist Mm -hmm. and we've got names for them, we think, um, but sometimes we can't go much further than that. Is it that they're hidden in plain sight? Is that what's going on that's that's made us slow to identify and classify them? Um, That's an interesting question. It isn't, it isn't, but I think along with that it is more that we haven't had a common language and some reference points so that we can see whether we really are talking about the same things. So when I say Uh, problem solving mm -hmm. and you say problem solving, I wonder if we are, in fact. And then the thing that we've been looking at is when you go out into the wild and look at real jobs, so Stephen, think about your job. (laughs) Yes. There are only some of those skills that are absolutely essential to what you're doing at the moment. And we've been identifying what they are. Usually people just develop great long lists. Um, We say, no, focus on the ones that are critical right now. Um, And then in your job, you probably need some of those skills to be quite sophisticated. Mm. Mm. But some other jobs might have the same skill area, but not to the same level of sophistication. And it won't be applied in the same way at all. 
and you could take your very sophisticated skills and go to a new situation, somewhere where you're not familiar, where you don't have much background knowledge or experience, and I'll guarantee that your performance will go backwards for a while. (laughs) (laughs) And they're the things that we haven't been able to capture because we've spent all our time talking about these things in terms of lists of labels. I want to dig a little bit deeper in that, Mm. but before I do, you've just triggered a memory Mm. of a few years ago working with two different cohorts in an organisation, older people and younger people, and bringing up problem-solving. For the more senior people, Mm. it was a self-sufficient mode of problem-solving where they would apply some analytical thinking, whereas for the younger cohorts, their version of problem-solving was getting into their little social network, picking the brains of friends from outside the organisation, mm. pooling that, and then applying some insights to the problem. So I, I see exactly what you mean. That's a different way of tackling that nut of mm. problem-solving. They were using a strategy, mm. um, and very good that they had one. As, as again, I talk with young people particularly, we look at people going, preparing to enter into work or making that transition into work and they don't necessarily have some of those strategies. Um, and they're some of the things that we think it's important we should be teaching. And there's more than just that. And there's many things you can be doing that are job related that will help people to do this better. We all do it a bit. Mm-hmm. Some of us better than others yeah. um, to a greater or lesser extent. But we think it can be... Um, that you can explicitly teach and help people to make it a little bit easier. Well, let's reflect on that a little more. Why has industry had trouble teaching these Mm. skills and making sure they are transferable as people move from job to job and sector to sector? Well, there's two parts to that question for Mm. a start. And the first is you said industry having trouble. The second is you talked about transfer. Yes. So I don't think it's that industry's had trouble. I think it's that everybody has trouble. I think it's a joint um, responsibility, employers and um, education and training sectors, and I mean schools, vet and higher ed. Um, and, And again, I'll go back to the fact that part of the issue is that we haven't had a common language we don't know if we're even talking about the same thing. So if we if we can't describe what it is we're expecting, mm-hmm. and if we can't put give some clear idea um, to anyone or to a, a worker for an employer or an employee, sorry, mm-hmm. to an employee or to a new entrant of what it is, what problem solving we expect of them in this situation. Um, then we can't actually help people to do this very well. Mm. But I'd also like to say that there are pockets of brilliance. There are employers that I've worked with who do this really well. Mm. But I don't think it's consistent. And they don't always know that that's what they're doing. It's intuitive and it's smart. But but again, when you know you're doing something and you can see why you're doing it, you can do it even better and you can build it into your systems. They don't all have that. And there are people in the vet sector, for example, who are doing amazing things in this area, but they are individuals. It is not systemic. So the second part of that was the transferring. And the second bit is the transfer. Uh, We don't talk about transfer. We talk about being able to adapt and apply, and that's different. Transfer sounds like you can put these things in your backpack and take Mm. them on to the next spot and off you go. And there are some things you need to put in your backpack. We call them transferability skills. Right. <laughs> a bit, uh, some thing, awareness, things if you are, do find yourself in a new context and you 
floundering. What can you do and which of these skills can you start to draw on and how might you do it? And these are things that many of us have worked out through our lives. But I meet lots of people who haven't worked them out. Um, and yet it's quite easy to, to bring them to the fore and start to talk about it. But you have to recognise that when you go into a new situation, the skills that you developed in the last one, you cannot just plonk them down and have them working straight away the same way they did before. You have to be aware about adapting and applying. And if you understand that, you're a part of the way along. And then there are strategies to help you to be able to do that. And those of us in this world are hoping that within the vet sector, we can identify ways to help facilitate this ability to adapt and mm. to understand how to apply to new context. And with that in mind, how would you like to see the vet sector try oh, to yes. respond to this? Yeah, well, interesting. Um, one of the things that we've done, having talked, um, looked at specific job roles, um, observed people working, seeing what they do and where some of the, which of the skills, the mission critical skills and how they play out. We've talked to their employers, many of the people in their organisations and so we've, we were able to describe um, what these skills look like and to what degree of sophistication they're expected. Mm-hmm. Then we've mapped the relevant vet qualifications to see how they currently approach what are Mission critical, that means essential skills to do the job that these qualifications are supposed to be preparing someone for. Mm -hmm. And what we have found consistently is that um, they're not there. Right. Or they're there in such a way that they're pretty useless. They're not, there's nothing there that you can hold on to. They're usually not assessed and therefore they're mostly not explicitly taught. So the individual trainers may take it upon themselves and they do. But I've also spoken to others who say, well, it's not our job. It's not there. Um, We don't have to do that and we don't have time or money to do it. So if we can't get them codified, if they're not actually in the qualification and recognised as being essential, just as essential as the technical skills that are in there, then we haven't – we're not even at first base. There there are a couple of um, qualifications we've found that demonstrate that it can be done because Mm -hmm. some people say that you can't do this. Um, The Certificate 3 in Engineering has two core units about planning and Mm organising. And planning and organising when you're doing fabrication, for example, are essential skills, more than just getting yourself to work or doing whatever. They're an integral part of doing the job. They teach it, they assess it. And that's incredibly important. It can be done. God bless the engineering sector. Yeah, but they also need to do some problem solving and they haven't got that in there. Ah. So, just, <laughs> so there you go. So finally, my layperson's mind <coughs> is thinking, if we tweaked the assessment grid or process or protocols, does that then feed its way back through the Has system? To. Yeah, what right. is assessed is is taught. Yeah. Um, it's made, and it's all about making these things explicit. You said hidden in plain sight. It's about drawing them out so that we can talk about them, we can discuss them, and it's incredibly important for young people entering the workforce. So when we looked at um, early childhood education and training, and I worked with some of the learners and trainers there in that field, we went and talked to employers about what they were looking for when someone was on structured work placement, which is basically your audition. Will you be offered a job? 
And in these places, there were jobs to be had, but they only gave them to the people that they had identified on placement that they thought would fit the bill. The things that they thought were most important, the employers were really clear about what they wanted, and with the core skills for work, we could get them to describe it in enough detail that we could go back to the learners and tell them. Right. And it's, it wasn't hard, but they, they, had the, they had the information they needed. When they went back the next day, they could start to think about, well, how can I do this? How do I do it now? Where am I doing something well? What can I do differently? Because these are the things that are going to separate me out from the herd. Um, and again, back looking back at the qualification they, was do- they were doing, there was nothing in there that aligned at all with what their employers were going to use as their um, employment uh, criteria. Kate Perkins, thank you. We've all heard about the increasing pace of technological change in the workplace and its impact on industries. But how does this apply to one's own set of life skills? How do we remain employable as the future becomes increasingly digital? Morteza Hajizade and Kevin O'Leary are both engaged in the VET sector in various roles involving research, data capture and analysis, and feeding that information back into the system to improve VET training packages and products. Maury, I'll turn to you first, if you don't mind. Um, At the No Frills conference, you presented on the findings of a nationwide consultation process undertaken by Australian Industry Standards, AIS, involving employers and education providers. So how did that come about, that uh, body of work, and what are some of the key insights relating to how individuals can help future-proof their careers? Uh, Yep, just as you mentioned, we organized a series of forums around the six capital countries in 2018, and uh, we invited different people from uh, employers, different industries that we cover in our organization, and policymakers, uh, people who are involved in the education sector, and lots of uh, lots of people who are actually working in these areas to come together and discuss uh, what we need to do to prepare for the future, which is the digital transformation and all the new technologies. And um, we recorded uh, the sessions and we took notes and everything, and then we started analyzing the notes to get the key messages of the of the forums. And, uh, well, there were many different messages, uh, but I guess the important ones, one of them was that we are living in an age of constant change, and the changes are really swift. And so uh, one, one key message was a call for micro-credentials or skill set, uh, which, uh, which is choosing a few skill sets from a qualification to fulfill a specific job role because it takes a shorter time for people to mm. complete uh, a micro-credential and uh, just go into the workforce and uh, do that uh, particular job task that they're required. So this was one of the key messages that a lot of employers were asking for. But of course, it's an easy thing to say. Uh, there are some challenges around that with regulations. We, we also have some work um, that uh, covers off on, on the portability of skills. So, so for example, mm-hmm. um, we've had a recent project uh, come to completion on uh, transport security in the transport industry. Now, That involves uh, transport security in aviation and transport security in maritime and transport security in transport and logistics. So an individual who's trained in one industry can more easily move to another industry, change the specialization of units within 
what they've already done and they can move into another industry. So that's from a kind of a philosophical perspective for the organization, that's a really important um, concept and it's something that in a lot of our projects we're, we're working towards, the idea of having a core set of, of, of uh, basic units that you can then, if you want to move into a new industry, you can just, with a few small additions, you can um, be work ready for that new occupation. Are there going to be some people hoping and praying mm -hmm. that they're in a position or a sector that's immune from these impacts of digitization in particular and being forced to upskill even with micro credentials? I, I, I think there are there are going to be whole areas that are going to be immune. So mm. so for example, um, there's there's going to be industries that uh, if you've got a large component of human interaction. Mm. Uh, I don't believe that that will ever be automated. So there's things that would come to mind for me, like aged care, um, the corrections industry, for example, anywhere where you've got even, um, even, even I would say the least automatable industry is probably childcare. <laughs> uh, you give that another couple of thousand years, uh, but there's certainly industries, and funnily enough, they also happen to be, in, in all three cases, um, growth industries. We all have these anxieties about the digital transformation and industry 4.0 which is legitimate because we're all concerned about what skills we might need in the future. Uh, but it must be always mentioned that into all organizations, their employees, the human factor, the human capital is the important thing. And uh, technology is made by humans for humans to be used by them. So it's going to enhance their capabilities. And uh, the important thing is to be able to also manage that shift, which was also a key message, one of the key messages in the forums. Uh, just as Kevin said, building pathways between vet sector and universities so that you do learn set of certain set of skills, but you're able to get into some roles, but also build up build upon that through pathways and our programs if you want to kind of uh, uh, carry on that education and also uh, increase your chances to build up transferability skills, build up your chances of moving to other, other uh, job roles. I even note that you've carried out some gap analysis during this uh, relating to what skills are currently needed by industry and what training is currently being offered in the vet sector. So what does this suggest that skills educators need to be concentrating on in the future? That's a bit of an interesting question, right? So one of the first things that we um, discovered from, from an aggregate point of view is that uh, of the skills um, spoken about during the um, forum almost 50% of them were soft skills of some variety or another. And that was surprising to us. And it was doubly surprising because essentially the, the structure of what we did was we asked uh, for each forum, there was uh, two panel sessions and then there were breakout sessions. There was three breakout sessions per um, per event. And there was about, uh, and there were six of those. So there's quite a, a lot of activity. And in each one of those breakout sessions, we had uh, 10 questions and only the last question actually related to soft skills. So the impact of soft skills up, so we almost from, from a data gathering point of view, we had almost had a bias against soft skills. And it was surprising then to see them rise up to the top nevertheless. So uh, the big one, which Maury alluded to earlier on, is um, uh, was, was change management, right? And management in general, because management is, uh, in my view, certainly, the most important soft skill because it involves so much human interaction. Yeah, and I, because uh, it was surprising to us, as Kevin mentioned, that a lot mm. of the speakers, we have all these questions about Industry 4.0, and surprisingly, almost half of the notes, I mean, the notes we analyzed were about soft skills. But yeah. the, I guess the 
key message is that uh, we humans always tend to think we are living in a special times since the beginning of humanity. Industrial um, with fire was in the special times, tools in the special times, industrial was in special times, electricity, automation, and now it's just the same. Yes, we are in special times, but we've always been in special times. So it's just being able. We already have these skills. It's just being able to manage the shift and have the right attitude. And later on, and another uh, important part of it is that uh, workplace is playing a very important role because uh, it's not that traditional workplace where you go and just work. It mm. should also be a learning organization as well. Mm. So you work, and there is also this internal uh, managerial support to develop internal capabilities to be able to manage that shift to more to a more digitalized world. We've touched on this in a previous episode of this uh, podcast, Vocational Voices, this notion of lifelong learning, mm. which we've all heard for so long. Yeah. Many of us have been able to get by mouthing lifelong learning without really having to engage in it. Yeah. We get carried along by momentum and ebb and flow. Are yeah. those days fast disappearing? That's another good question. I would say that, um, when I, and this is uh, coming back to a conversation Maury and I had yesterday, uh, we were talking about um, essentially what we're moving into is an increasingly tech, technical world. And there's there's going to be um, basically the people who understand how that world works and the people who, you know, just regular human beings who are getting on, you know, going through their lives. We are, I can see, and what's already happening, to be honest, is the creation of uh, entire jobs that are related to communicating that technical world back to the wow. regular citizen. Um, so it's, it's kind of, I think that yes, uh, I, um, technical lifelong skills and lifelong learning will will continue to be important. Um, I don't think it will affect absolutely everybody. Um, that being said, in in last year's keynote speech um, from uh, that chap from Alphabet, he was talking about the proportional increase of um, of learning that we're all going to need to do, which was almost terrifying. Yes. Um, but I don't think it'll be fully as widespread mm -hmm. as, as he suggested. Yeah. yeah. One of the benefits of this mini conversation is that you've highlighted this micro-credential. And when you first mentioned at the beginning, Maury, I was instantly thinking of, inverted commas, hard skills, technical skills. Mm. Are some of these soft skills slipping by almost in plain sight without being codified? Are they going to need, well, we're going to need to apply some micro-credentialism mm. to them? It sounds like a hard job if that's the case. Yeah, well, this whole thing about hard skills and soft skills is just a very, I don't know how to put it, it's a very nebulous thing, right? Because you don't really know if this is skill. And then again, the thing with soft skills, are they really skills or behavioral traits? Hmm. Or that's what you also find out in the gap analysis. So you apply for a job, but the job is trying to, as Kevin uh, found out in his gap analysis, the job is trying to appeal to the person to apply. And uh, if I'm the manager of this company, I know that I can work much easier with a person with certain set of qualities rather mm. than skills. So I'm, I tend to uh, hire a guy who I can work with mm. in a much easier manner. I so I would and I kind of assume that the guy has some certain level of hard skills and they can build up on that. But it's the softer skills we don't really talk about them, or it's very difficult to train for mm. these soft skills. And I guess because uh, soft skills to me is like a social. Experience, it's something you gain through your social interaction with others. And uh, I guess one way is apprenticeship, which the vet sector is already doing that, and more partnership between, and that also came up in the forums, partnership between different industries, industries and universities, and uh, the vet providers. So it's students actually who know the hard skills, they go into the job, and it's uh, 
through the micro credentials or what or pathway programs it's on the job that they start to develop those uh soft skills they start to develop how to negotiate how to resolve conflicts how to maintain a positive attitude towards change and this is a social experience to me where uh, that they can learn on the job so i don't know if i can kind of mm. put it into the vet sector in, in in terms of having a unit of competency mm. to develop somebody's soft skill they they do they do exist mm. um and they exist not just at the unit level, but also in like the um, uh, performance evidence as well. They do. They they are in. They're just interspersed, and almost every hard skill has some s soft skill component to it. Um, the one of the difficulties is around the measurement of it. Um, more, you, you had um, some pretty interesting insights there. Oh uh, yeah, uh, like the point about hard skills is that it's easy to quantify them. If I need to learn computer, I can do a course and I show the certificate to my manager. I can create an app. There's a there's a tangible delivery. So there's some deliverables are tangible, I can see that, but uh, if I, my manager tells me, Maury, you need to learn computer skills, fine with me. But when it comes to soft skills, there's a degree of resistance. If my manager tells me to, Maury, you need to improve your attitude, I would say, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I would probably be resistant, I would become defensive. Mm. My attitude is okay, so people are not really, <laughs> maybe it's you. <laughs> wow. So my manager, yeah, because there is not a really quantifiable way of measuring them. And if I even improve my attitude, how can I show it in my, in my annual performance review? How can I show that I've become a better team player? So we kind of we can't quantify them. So that's the or assess them in a way. So that's the difficulty with uh, soft skills. Which even even measuring it, even measuring it in the system is uh, is a difficult problem. So as we were looking in the in the um, job advertisement data, um, so one of the things that comes up a lot is um, they're looking for experience, right? Now you would say that experience is not a skill, right? It's just being around. Uh, but they would say, I'm looking for um, experience in high-voltage wiring. Now, they clearly don't mean that you have been around high-voltage wires. They, what they are actually saying is they want skills associated with high-voltage wiring. So even the wording around it can be confusing. And we did some analysis um, last year, um, which I thought was rather amusing, um, which comes about from the trending of certain terms within the system. So, for example, uh, I found that um, collaboration... That is on the downer in the in the vet system. Uh, teamwork, however, is shooting on up. <laughs> so you have a swapping of of, of words, um, which are both soft skills, right? Um, but if you were, if you didn't know about that other word or any other synonyms of those words, you'd miss out on that on that overall trend, which is a, you know a continuation of that soft skill. So yeah. What an interesting future for all of us. <laughs> We've got things changing that are requiring technical skill change, and we're also beginning to remember we're all humans. That's right. And all those so-called soft skills are about how we collaborate and uh, work together for the enterprise's outcome. Wow. Right. Gentlemen, thank you both for uh, sharing some of your insights, uh, Maury and Kevin. Pleasure. Thank you so much. In life, there are two sectors we all depend upon at some stage, hospitality and aged care. By 2023, these sectors will need an additional 79,000 and 69,000 new workers respectively. And that's something Melinda Brown, General Manager Skills IQ, describes as a significant challenge. For these sectors, understanding what attracts students to study vet qualifications and what leads them to complete their courses or leave are crucial insights if labour force targets are going to be met. 
Melinda, what research project do you have underway at the moment to analyse the student journeys? So um, thanks, Steve. We are currently conducting a longitudinal study um, into, I guess, student outcomes in both of those areas, aged care and, and cookery. Um, we work with both of those sectors as a skills service organisation and we'd gotten a lot of feedback from our industry stakeholders saying that they had a really big issue with retention of people within their workforces. So they could get people to come into the workforce but they just weren't able to keep them and within about six months they were losing staff and there was this constant churn and this ridiculously high expenditure on recruitment that wasn't paying off in the long term. Um, so we looked at what some of the reasons might be for that and there's a lot of anecdotal reasons and a lot of urban myths that circulate around this that, you know, the wages are low or the hours are bad or, you know, the, the staff and the management aren't, aren't nice to their junior staff, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But there'd not really been any research on why that was. And in terms of being able to create programs and policy that might help to assuage some of the issues with retention... Um, there was nothing to base it on. So we decided to go ahead with a study that would look at some of those issues and try to give some actual data behind what were the reasons that people weren't staying and what were um, the types of um, things they were going to, I suppose, if they were leaving the industry, um, where were they headed and, and what was going on. So that then we could look at how we could um, arrange things to try and, and stop the, the leak that we were getting within industry. Leak is exactly the word. As you were describing it, I was imagining a bucket that you're trying to fill up and it's just leaking out at the other end. And pretty much that's exactly what's happening um, because people will come into these industries. They're industries where there are labour shortages and skills shortages. So people see it as a prospect for, um, for a job and for a career. Um, and, and what's happening is they're not staying. So it's, it's costing employers and the industry as a whole a lot of money. So let's tease out... Initially, what we're finding is perhaps some of the reasons why they're not staying, because I was wondering is if we're suddenly expecting people to pick up their qualifications and that wasn't anything in their mindset in moving into that field, that itself is going to be leading to a leak. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, look, I suppose we've, we've done wave one of the study. We have three waves in this study and we've finished the first wave and, and just um, just received the report, which we haven't quite released yet. So you're getting the, the early heads up. Um, but we, we've done wave one. We partnered with the Wallace Group to conduct the field work for the study, um, who lots of people will know they do a lot of the longitudinal study work. Um, for, for across most of the, the work in Australia. Um, most of the students commencing the courses in both of these areas are doing it to find a job. So 49% of respondents in aged care and 25% in cookery, or they're looking to move into a different career, which is related to that. So again, we've got 37% um, in aged care and 20% in cookery. The difference, I suppose, we found between the two industries, and we, we did choose these industries based on the feedback, but also because they had some similarities and differences that we could look at the data and compare. With cookery as well, there was a difference that um, we had quite a number of respondents who rated getting extra skills for their job or starting their own business as a major driver between going into the particular particular qualification that they, they chose. Um, and most of the students said that the reason that they had entered this um, this course or entered this career um, pathway was that they had a passion for it. So we got quite a lot of people saying, you know, I've always wanted to work with um, with people. Um, I've looked after my grandmother, for example, and I, I want to work with the elderly. Um, with cookery, it's obviously I like to cook. I've always cooked for my family and I'd like to, to do that as a career. So um, we, we had quite a few people coming into those um, areas because of passion or because of desire to 
do something that they enjoyed, which I guess is one of the first myths busted, that nobody wants to do these jobs. Nobody wants to work in aged care. Nobody wants to work in hospitality or cookery. Mm-hmm. And we hear that a lot. But the people in these courses, and we, we had quite um, quite good responses, 30, 344 in aged care and 206 respondents in cookery. So uh, we had quite a good response um, in terms of the students from across Australia. So we've already busted that first myth. There are people out there who want to do these jobs, who want to be in these careers. Of those two, the one that's more counterintuitive is people with passion moving into aged care hmm. because I can understand cookery because we have lots of television shows like, or the, the different chef shows that surely and perhaps dangerously raise the romantic notions of what it is to be in the cookery world that might be met with a dose of cold reality when you're actually having to check in day in, day out. It's interesting that you say that because I think when those shows first started to rise up, everyone was like, great, this is going to be wonderful for the cookery industry. I think a a couple of years on, everyone's like, oh dear, it's probably the worst thing that ever happened because people think that because you can cook a good Sunday roast, if you quickly go and be on a a reality TV show, within a couple of weeks, you'll be able to be a chef. And and I guess the reality is that in, in real life, in the workforce, it's a lot more complex than that. There's a lot more skills and training that you need. Um, to be able to work across that whole cross-section of the industry. The word passion is an interesting one because I'm sure it's not always savvy and and well-loved in academic circles, Mm. but there is something about perhaps a challenge to try and nurture the flame of that passion in what we're planning in these different sectors. Is that actually being thought about and talked about? Is that something that's at the table? Absolutely. And I mean, I think um, certainly all of the industry reference committees that we work with in the various um, sectors that we work and all of the sectors that we work in are what we call people facing sectors. So they're ones where the the main aim of the job, I guess, is to work with other people as a customer, a patient, a client, etc. And a lot of people do go into those because they have um, a, a... high level of emotional intelligence and they're aware and they want to work with people so it it is a passion-based industry where you know some of the others I suppose you go into because you're technical or you're good with your hands and things like that Um, this is more in that emotional intelligence space I suppose and and all of these things um, rate that way and I mean it's it's quite interesting I suppose when you look at um, the students that have gone through the courses and some of the results that we got Um, 91% of the aged care responses were happy or satisfied or highly satisfied with their course. They thought it was great, 91%. So, I mean, that's, we talk a lot about what employers think about people's courses and, and, you know, were the employers satisfied and so on. In this case, we've got students who've gone through and they're they're highly satisfied and 89% in cookery also. So there's a high satisfaction level there with the courses that they're doing. Um, and, and one of the factors that rated most highly in the satisfaction was um, where they had industry trainers who had relevant industry experience. So they're there and they're wanting to learn from other people who have experience in the sector and, and that is something that rates quite highly with the, the young people that are doing um, these courses. Now, nine out of ten of them also thought that by doing their course it would help them get a job or get a better job within the industry as well. So they're obviously looking very optimistically at things um, in that respect. Um, 82% of aged care, 59% of cookery felt that their course was relevant to their job and where it wasn't, most of the time they attributed that to a misalignment perhaps between the job and what was happening in training. And that I think is something that we're going to look at in the next wave and try and extrapolate out a little because we did have some comments because when people did say that they they were not satisfied, we um, did some qualitative um, data about that and, and asked them why. 
And um, some of them said, oh, well, look, I learned all this stuff in my course. And then when I got to the workplace, they said, oh, no, we don't do it like that. Yeah, I know you learned that, but we don't do that. So I think there are mm. some things that are going to come out of this that aren't necessarily going to be training related. They're going to be broader industry issues that, that perhaps can be looked at um, in the long term. So for people who are running and planning training courses in the vet sector, is it too soon to react to some of your initial findings? Look, I think for, I mean, obviously wave one is our, our benchmarking data. It's our baseline data right. for the other two waves. Um, I think some of the findings there that they'll find quite relevant are these things about satisfaction with mm. things like having industry relevant trainers and, and um, industry relevant course material and so forth like that. Um, given that we've got 95% of the aged care students and 85% of the cookery that are satisfied with their job, satisfied with their training, where do these people go? If they like their job and the industry and they like their training, in six months' time they're apparently gone. This is what we'll find out in wave two, I suppose. Mm. But, but where do they go and what happens to them? Are they going to other jobs within the industry? Are they going to different jobs in a different industry? Or, or what's happening to them? So I guess that's what we're looking at with waves two and three. We'll be looking to benchmark all of that against our baseline data from wave one. And I guess it's explore those employment outcomes. Work out what it is that drives staff satisfaction and drives retention. And then also look at um, perhaps areas where policy or programs can come into play to help facilitate that and to, to help with that retention issue. I guess the double-edged sword with this, these initial findings is if everything is rosy with the training, people in running vet training courses might think, phew, off the hook. But in fact, someone has to take responsibility for this, don't they? Indeed. And that is one of the questions that we will be asking everybody. And, and one of the things that we've... Um, We've planned wave two is commencing right about now. Yep. And one of the things that we will be checking in, because I guess you you don't know what you don't know. And we sort of talked about that in the keynote this morning, um, that people don't know what they don't know. And um, for so, in some respects, I suppose people have done this course, they've got a lot of new information, they're really excited and they're going out and they're starting their career and they think it's all great. It'll be really interesting to come back a year later and say, so now when you think about when you first entered industry and you had that knowledge, was it actually the knowledge you needed? Or if you had your time again, what other things would you have wanted to know or do that could have made it better? So, so that'll be where the, the interesting parts come in, I suppose. Melinda Brown, thank you very much. Thank you. When is a worker truly competent? According to Michael Hartman, CEO of Skills Impact, the VET system doesn't always support suitable workplace practice and often fails to meet the expectations of learners, employers, industry and government. He argues that the current VET system appears to be forcing RTOs to certify learners as competent when they do not have sufficient access to workplace practice to meet the definition of competency currently held by the system. He notes that while training is an enabler of competency, only supervised workplace practice delivers real competency. Michael, if workplace practice has a distinct advantage over training in terms of worker competency levels, why shouldn't all vocational training take place as workplace practice? Good question, Steve. And um, what we're um, talking about today based on our consultations with industry is that um, training is certainly needed. Um, so we're not actually making a point that training is a second, uh, second citizen. We actually do need a lot of training, but we also need the workplace practice. 
And the vet sector is well, well known and, um, you know, it's got one of its signature programs is traineeships and apprenticeships that carefully have blends of training, formal training, as well as workplace practice. Those programs now make up less than 8% of delivery in the, in the vet sector. And so the real question is what's happening with the other 90% or so of training delivery in the vet sector. And a lot of that training happens without mandated workplace practice. So a, a, a student can turn up at a TAFE college or another RTO. And um, for example, in vet nursing is one of the sectors we look after as a skills service organisation. And they can enrol in a two-year program in vet nursing and we've just put in the qualification 400 hours of work experience is mandated by industry. Right. Until that went in there, there was no mandated work experience. So you do all the learning in a college and you don't necessarily get access to a workplace to practice the skills that you've learnt in the college. It's not rocket science to understand that some workplace practice is going to imbue you with with understandings that are, are deeper and, and, and broader. What's happened? Do you have any sense of why the vet sector has retreated, it seems, from having those elements mandated? Is it convenience? The theme of my presentation to the NCVR conference is, um, is about the obvious things that we quite often overlook in the vet sector. And one of those obvious things is the impact of funding cuts. So if we look at, um, high, we look at um, primary and schools education, if we look at universities, over the last 10 years they've increased by 30% the funding levels, which really in, in real terms over 10 years that's about staying even. Mm -hmm. The vet sector has, has declined slightly by about 6%, which basically means they've experienced a 30% funding cut. So it's very difficult to deliver quality when the funding goes down, particularly when the needs are rising. So, you know, industry's working more and more hours each year. I think um, last year we topped about 22 trillion hours of work. Um, delivery hours was um, about 780 million uh, delivery hours, a lot of delivery hours, but in percentage terms, trillions versus millions, we are talking a very small percentage of the workforce is actually supported by the vet sector. We would like to see that grow, and uh, for it to grow, we think there needs to be policy improvements and funding improvements. So one of the obvious things is you can't run a vet sector with the low levels of funding that's currently in the system. Um, and that really inhibits an RTO's ability to go in the workplace and, and work uh, hand in hand with enterprises to ensure their students get the required workplace practice. So that's an obvious um, you know, conclusion number one. Another obvious one is we think that workplaces now are sort of losing the culture of training. They expect to get a trainee with a qualification and that person to be completely work ready and work practised. And um, we're finding there's a drop in the number of employers who are prepared to take on apprentices and trainees and um, so that's an obvious implication that um, if you're a student wanting to um, learn a new area of work for yourself it's very difficult to get access to a workplace to practice that and so the journey of competency does depend highly on RTO-led training but it also depends on access to workplace practice situations and we would like to see that change. There's another little gap that's arisen in a couple of interviews in this particular episode, and that is where someone who's finished some training goes to the workplace 
and is told, oh, no, you don't do it that way. We don't do it that way. And there's a gap between the reality of protocols in the workplace and what's actually being trained. And I wonder if that's a symptom of the potential disconnect when you are learning off-site versus having workplace practice as part of the training process. Yes, um, that is one of the challenges. And um, quite often it's the employer who thinks, what are they training in these days? Yes. But sometimes the reality is they are, the students are learning modern day practice. The employer ah. is um, working on systems and processes that might be 15 or 20 years old. And it is one of the challenges of us, of our organisations that write qualifications and skill standards, is we have to have these standards cover technologies that were created 20 years ago that are still active and being used in the workplace versus technologies now and for the future. And that's the tension we've got um, in the vet sector um, because not every workplace is the same. And so that's why we, we don't support a system that's based purely on workplace practice because enterprises love delivering skills that are absolutely specific to their enterprise. And yeah. one of the qualities of the vet sector is that it delivers skills that are recognised nationally that are designed to meet industry standards versus a standard of one particular enterprise. So no particular stakeholder gets to point at the other saying the problem's all at your end then, do they? Um, if it was a very simple system, you could say, <laughs> could say that, but no, the, uh, um, we think a lot of the areas of skills and training are oversimplified. People try and understand it and look for very simple solutions, mm -hmm. but um, the system is a, is a lot more complicated than most people give it um, credit for, and it takes a fair bit of time to understand it. Well, based on your industry consultations, what's the actual reality of competence outcomes at the moment from that perspective? It's, it's variable, and where industry and enterprises are involved in the competency journey, we find there are very good outcomes, and, um, and we're just concerned that the areas of growth of the vet sector in recent years seem to be areas of growth which doesn't require industry involvement, mm -hmm. and the way the regulation of the vet sector is currently working, it almost many enterprises and in industries feel like they're shut out of the system rather than an active participant in the system. And this is something that could change. It's a cultural change, but it's also a regulation uh, change. The definition of competency does re require workplace practice, but um, enterprises who can best deliver that practice and can best assess as to whether that practice is being performed correctly are quite often left out of the system. It's too difficult for RTOs to bring them in the system. It costs money, it costs time. And unfortunately, we're, the vet sector, due to funding pressures, has now turned into a high-volume, low-margin business. And so we all know what high-volume, low-margin businesses look like, and a lot of the education and training needs to be niche, needs to be regional, needs to be enterprise-specific, and the system doesn't have enough money in it to deliver those outcomes. Mm, you're touching on some other themes that are seeming to be quite universal here mm. at the moment because in that scenario, you can understand an RTO just focusing on what is going to get assessed as to what they put into their curriculum, etc. And so my question is, the current assessment and certification system, does that need fixing in some way to realign the outcomes to better need, uh, meet what the industry actually needs? Is, there, is that one area where we could actually 
get the toolkit out and start making some changes. Yes, I, I think RTOs try and do the best job they po- possibly can do under a lot of um, challenges. But one of those challenges is that the you know there is a regulator and you know, the regulator wants to make sure that the RTO has performed the assessment correctly. And be careful if you're an RTO sort of relying on third-party assessment or third-party information. Our contention, we work with industry all the time, is that most industry bodies or employers or enterprises are best positioned to make an assessment about whether someone's competent or not. So we think there's a real role for RTOs to make an assessment. Does, is this person knowledgeable and are they safe to work? That can be assessed within an RTO environment. And then what can be assessed in the world of work is an employer saying, does this person perform to the required work standards. You put them both together and you do get the system definition of competency, but RTOs under the current system are being asked to do the whole thing. You know, the the beginning training right to assessment of is this person competent in multiple situations, repeated circumstances, and an RTO is not able to deliver that. So in the presentation, I sort of unpack these issues. Well, you know, what does competency mean? And for Mm. many RTOs, it's well, I've got a day to spend with this student, so competent is what I can um, make this student into within one day because that's all the funding we've got. Um, and, um, and we just think the system needs to just be broadened to include this combination of RTO inputs, which are absolutely vital, and then employer-led practice where the enterprise makes a competency decision as part of the competency journey. Because mm, in your talk also, you, you tease apart uh, workplace safe to practice as one level, workplace competency, which, what you've just been talking about, and there's, there's mastery. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, this is the, this is the missing um, obvious bit that's not really talked about. When you talk to people about competency, they say, oh, they're a little bit competent, they're reasonably competent, they're very competent, or oh, they're, they're really, really good. And, um, and we're not confusing this with graded assessment of A, B, C or D, we're basically saying that competency is a journey and to get someone safe to practice and knowledgeable, you know, you might be able to do in a few months depending on what the the units of competency are, not a whole profession, and then they practice for six or 12 months and they get quite good, but if they continue to do that work for five or six years, they achieve a level that's well beyond competency, but our system doesn't recognise that. Our culture doesn't recognise it, and so we think there is a role for the vet sector to work with industry so that there is this recognition of a level of mastery so that people take pride. They want to become a master in their profession, and they also want to be mentoring and helping other people get to those levels, which means we develop a culture in workplaces of workplace training that is beyond just what RTOs can deliver. Michael, to finish, if we, you had the power and the funding for the vet sector, what, what, what would you like to see if you looked into your crystal ball? What, what kind of changes would you love to uh, implement? Well, I love the idea of um, people and organisations playing to their strengths and being allowed to play for their strengths. So our, the simple thing that I don't think is too far to reach for is let's let RTOs do what they're good at, which is develop knowledge and develop basic skills so people are safe to practice. Let them do what they're good at and let them assess against that. It wouldn't be a competency certificate. 
It would be a stepping stone to competency and then let industry do what they're good at. And that is they know what competency looks like. They know how to ensure their workers can deliver competency. So let industry then take, continue the journey and issue the final competency certificate. And then also build onto the system, as we've just said, this concept of mastery so that people can be aspirational in their roles over a five to ten year window of a job rather than thinking about the next two to three months. Michael Hartman, thank you. Pleasure. Alongside debate about soft skills and employability skills, there's a challenge and an opportunity to revisit the vet sector's approach to recognition of prior learning. RPL candidates often struggle to have their skills formally recognised as workplace competencies, and this is reflected in the declining numbers of students with RPL granted. Deb Carr, Think About Learning, and Dr Helen Smith, RMIT consultant and CDU University fellow, are undertaking a research project to identify and explore difficulties commonly faced by RPL candidates while also seeking to find some mitigating strategies. Deb, I'll turn to you first. Why should the vet sector be paying more attention to RPL? Mm, I'm glad you asked that, Steve. Um, First and foremost... Um, RPL has a, a social justice agenda as well as labour market efficiency agenda. So it is, um, they're the assumed potential benefits and we're looking at a changing world of work where one of the biggest skills that are learned in the workplace are technological skills. So that's well and good to learn those at your job until you need to work, uh, move or you want to um, you move job or move up in your career. So to have that formal recognition, that piece of paper to say, this is what I can do, when you are competing with other people for a job on the market and you don't have that qualification, that becomes really important. So the social equity or social justice aspect, um, who loses out if we're not paying attention to that? What is the cost? We all lose out um, because everybody knows that... Um, more equitable societies and more cohesive societies and societies in which there are opportunities to learn are societies in which um, people can engage. So the more opportunities we give to people to develop the confidence you get by being formally recognised, you can argue that we're contributing to the overall cohesiveness of society. How does RPL work within the VET system? If you're asking how RPL works in the VET system and how it's supposed to work and actually how it does work, they're two different things. Mm -hmm. How it's supposed to work is that the VET, uh, the RTO, is supposed to facilitate the process of recognition by assessing what the person already knows and the skills they already have. So it is an assessment process. What actually happens is that it becomes an interrogation rather than an assessment. And this has come through Deb's data and also also through my experience. It's a negative... You've got to go away and come back with... Everyone in VET knows the expression, the wheelbarrow of evidence. You've got to come back with the wheelbarrow of evidence so I can be convinced as a representative of the system that you're good enough to be recognised. And what it was meant to be 
was a collaborative process where a teacher helped somebody who needed to get formal recognition talk about what they knew and provide sources of evidence that the assessor could then go and put together and confirm that the person was competent. So what we're finding in the way that it's conducted compliantly is that the production of evidence, having to produce that evidence is the major barrier in two ways. Um, to, to gain employer buy-in, because much of the time you need that third-party reference um, and that employer you may not have work with anymore or you may not want to contact anymore or they haven't kept the records or the person that you need to contact has gone away and doesn't work there or it's shut down, it's not there anymore. So to get that third-party um, referee is sometimes near impossible. To get the documentary evidence that exactly suits what you need it to suit, sometimes workplaces don't actually do things that map directly, in a way, that map directly to a unit of competency. So that's a, a really big disconnect because how the units of competency, how much detail they go down to, not every workplace works like that. I'm forming an impression from an RTO perspective, that a candidate seeking RPL requires them to go above and beyond the call of duty and it's a burden as opposed to being another equivalent approach of getting someone through. That's beautifully yeah, put. Yeah. So it's, it's supposed yeah. to be an enabling and empowering process and I did interview RPL assessors as well and I really did feel for them because they knew to do it in a compliant way they were putting so much pressure on the candidate but they have to do it this way this is the way that the compliance says to do and they gave me so much insight and detail into the difficulties that the candidates um, are experiencing um, that puts them in the middle so for example one assessor said um I have this pack I send out to my potential RPL clients. It's fairly massive. massive. It it's, uh, gives a summary of the units of competency and gives a summary of what evidence you, might, you may need to, um, to enrol in this process. My manager says, this is way too big. It's way too big. It's too cumbersome. It gives, it's overwhelming for the potential RPL candidate, which is true. I have found that those packages are overwhelming for potential candidates. So manager says, cut it down. ASQA comes to visit our regulator and says, this is a great pack. This is great. This is what we want to see. This ticks all our boxes of compliance. It gives the student everything that they need to know, an informed decision to make whether they're going to enrol in RPL or not. So here's the assessor in the middle. They're getting the angst from the, from the candidate. They're feeling bad because the candidate's having a terrible experience. The regulator's happy. The manager's not happy. It's, it's a terrible position to be in. Are there any particular groups for whom RPOs of greater significance than others? As an enabling and empowering um, activity, it was meant for people that don't have post-compulsory education. Right. However, the data is telling us the mm. uptake for this is only for people uh, that are Certificate 3 onwards. And in fact, most of my research subjects had Certificate 4 as their lowest level of education attainment. Two of them had their Masters. 
they still had enormous difficulties in confidence to do the RPL process. How on earth someone that doesn't have any education after school, which the RPL process was meant to be for, can complete this process with confidence intact. It's supposed to be a confidence building activity. It, the data shows that it simply is not. So let's tease out this research project that's underway. What's, what's the overview? What, what's the process? And uh, what are you hoping to arrive at? So I've spent time in interviewing 21 RPL assessors with the experience of over a thousand RPL assessments. Then I went to stage two and interviewed and worked with um, 11 RPL candidates in, in different stages, 28 interviews with 20 hours of recorded um, information for me to go through. I did ask the candidates, how can we do this better? And they've got some really um, valuable uh, suggestions for RTOs as well as for um, candidates themselves to empower throughout the process. We do know the system and having to have documentary evidence to meet what we call the performance evidence part of the unit of competency actually is in opposition to recognising someone that has informal learning through informal learning come to being competent. So we're saying you can arrive to this competent state by any which way, informally, formally or, or non-formal. But then we say, oh, but um, you have had to do yeah. this, you have had to do this, you have had to do this, and we want all the documentary evidence to say so. So it's 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 There's some contradictions, yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Helen, I'll close with some reflections from you, if I may, from the tertiary sector looking in, RPL is active there as well. Are there any last observations you'd like to share with us about what's happening across different aspects of that broad spectrum? I'd have to say that universities really don't get RPL. Right. Um, TAFE, uh, VET teachers normally do, mm -hmm. particularly now after um, 20 years of competency-based learning because people have got used to the idea that there are a set of standards and the trick is to get the person who needs the qualification through a process of assessment so they can demonstrate that they're competent. Now, that mirrors very nicely onto RPL if you didn't have this terrible compliance blanket sitting over us. Academics tend to see knowledge as a thing that people come to a particular place for. Knowledge in a university is structured around the discipline. And as an academic, you're the custodian of the discipline and the person comes um, to you. If you look at the way knowledge is organised in the VET sector, it's organised around workplace processes, productive processes. And it's easier there to see, oh yeah, well you learn the thing by doing it and by watching someone else do it and by practising and by talking to people who do it well and reflecting on it and so on. So I'd say overall in the tertiary sector, it's very mixed and pretty patchy in higher ed. Academics find it very difficult even to know how to take people who've got a certificate for a diploma or an advanced diploma and allowing them um, credit into a degree. In VET, it's, it's done better because there's a consciousness of it <laughs> and it is undermined by our fear of being non-compliant. And I think one of the things that we really need to do is have a conversation about compliance.
And hopefully this is just one of those starts. Dr. Helen Smith, Deb Carr, thank you. Thank you. Australia needs its industries and its workforce to adopt lifelong learning so we can be flexible and adjust to changes and challenges that are upon us and will continue to be so. However, there's growing awareness that there are psychological factors affecting a third of all learners that undermine their confidence in and commitment to studies and training. And according to Cameron Williams, PhD candidate with the University of New South Wales Black Dog Institute, many educators are unaware of these psychological constructs causing such detrimental consequences. Cameron, two of the most debilitating psychological factors affecting learners are imposterism and maladaptive perfectionism. I wonder if you could start by perhaps describing them and explaining how they're affecting learners in our education system. Sure. Thank you so much, Steve. So essentially, you're right. They are two of the uh, you know problematic kind of individual differences or components that we consider with students at higher education. So imposterism is essentially this feeling that the student doesn't belong at you know, the um, training organisation, the university, wherever they are. They feel that either they've you know, been admitted due to chance or luck or some other factor and that they're kind of just fooling everybody else to think that you know, they fit in when really they don't actually believe that that's the case. Uh, maladaptive perfectionism is a similar kind of component. Um, And essentially, this component is the negative part of perfectionism. It's that negative side. It's when perfectionism, the striving for goals, becomes excessive. So this is not where students are, you know, trying to do their best and trying to succeed in their studies, but rather this is when they believe that no matter what they do, it's never good enough. Um, It affects quite a large proportion of students, somewhat surprisingly. Um, And I think we'll probably talk about that a a little bit later in terms of why that might be. But um, essentially, you know, these components, they influence two factors for students. They influence well-being. Um, Students either start to feel burnt out or exhausted or cynical about their studies. Um, Sometimes depressive symptoms kick in as well for these students. And then in turn, as well as, you know, just directly as well, uh, it also influences the students' educational outcomes. Sometimes students just become demotivated, disengaged, um, and sometimes this even leads them to drop out of their studies. Picking up on these two, before we dive deeper into the vet sector, um, both imposterism and maladaptive perfectionism don't strike me as something new, or are they, or are we just becoming aware of naming this? Right, they're certainly not new. It's, it's, you know, 1990s was when imposterism started to be spoken about. Um, it fell behind in the research a little bit, so it kind of had a, you know, space where it wasn't being discussed. Um, and then I think what's happened since, uh, in even the last 10 or so years, perhaps even less than that, is it started to be spoken about in popular media. So it started to be you know, discussed in terms of organisations because these things affect academic staff just as much as they affect students. Um, likewise, you know, we've started to get an understanding that perfectionism has both positive and negative sides. So you're right, it's a matter of, you know, the two kind of components there um, being not necessarily new things, but things that we're starting to think about more in research and hopefully the next step is to start to think about them in practice. 
a disturbing aspect of this is how these psychological factors can erode the soft skills that we often refer to, things like resilience, when it seems that having a strong base of such soft skills are the best way to thwart the effects of these psychological factors. Um, how on earth can the vet sector navigate what seems to be a catch-22 scenario? Right, you're exactly right. It's, it's really a reciprocal kind of relationship that exists here between um, all of these factors, you know, the positive influences the negative and then exactly vice versa. And we've actually done some longitudinal research around that to kind of start to look at, you know, how do these two things interact? Is it that one starts first? Is it, one, you know, that one then influences the other? What's the way around this? Um, and unfortunately, the results for that are still something that we're getting to. But I think that what we do know is that what we can do within the higher education system is factors or, or approaches, rather, that can actually influence the negative in the ways that we would hope to, whilst also simultaneously building the positive. So for me, it's less about thinking, you know, which point is the starting point and which one do we need to increase or decrease first, but rather going, these factors generally affect a very large proportion of students, obviously at different levels, but they are fairly, you know, prevalent. So if we can do things in the educational system to simultaneously kind of improve or fix one of the two sides, then uh, I think that that is, you know, the way that we should start to be considering it as kind of a culture change. It's almost, it seems, like we need some nuance to respond when a student or a learner is starting to, sh to ask some questions or show. So I remember my first attempt at doing undergraduate studies, uh, wanting to defer midway through a course, and it was either black or white. It was either in or out. There were, I was an annoyance rather than something that required some sort of thoughtful response. Uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, is, is that the sort of thing that you feel we're going to need to get to, some nuance in responding to th these warning signs and these questions? Right, yeah. I mean, I think that there is that. I think that the ideal situation, I'm, I'm quite a kind of hopeful optimist when it comes to a lot of these things. So I think that, you know, the, uh, the ideal that we will eventually move to is just better preventative measures within right. changing the university culture. But I think that you also touched on a really important point there is that, um, you know, there are certainly factors that I'm not sure that we do well enough currently. So just kind of qualitative, you know, speaking to students um, rather than, you know, necessarily just giving them an end of semester or end of year survey that the students are often cynical about the, you know, the effects of that. So I think it's things about asking students, okay, what can we be doing better? What are we already doing well? And then, you know, looking at these kind of factors. And then the third, uh, sorry, the, the subsequent point to that is also when students are starting to think about withdrawing, you know, having support mechanisms, not necessarily that we need more support mechanisms, although I think, you know, more support is always going to be beneficial, mm. but just making sure that students know where they can go. I think that right. that is really important because sometimes there's this disconnect where students are going to academics. Oftentimes academics then don't know where to send the students because academics themselves are really stressed. So I think just better information, better transparency, these kind of things I think would be really valuable. And just to close on some thoughts at a personal level for any trainers or educators within the VET system who are listening to this, how can they increase their awareness of this situation as well as self-awareness? Because if there's one thing that out of the whole black dog awareness is it's not always the other, it's also within that we need to be mindful of. 
Right, you're exactly um, hitting on the the right point there. I think that um, it's a really hard one. So one thing that I always stress is that academics need further support as well. Um, academics are one of the most highly stressed, um, you know, careers. Um, you know, they have one of the highly most stressed occupations and and I think it would be really naive especially as a PhD student to go you know these academics should be doing so much more for students and I don't believe that because I don't think that we can optimally improve one component of well-being i.e. student well-being or staff well-being without affecting and optimizing the other component so it's a really tough question because I think that it brings us to a point where quite frankly we need to do more practice we need to do more research and I think that that is, you know, quite frankly, why I'm looking at the kind of thing that I am. Um, at the moment, though, I think that it's about kind of just diving into some of the research, even if it's a, you know, um, educator that has a, you know, a kind of early days scientist practitioner model in their mindset. Fortunately, this research, a lot of it is relatively common sense. So a lot of the um, components that we're talking about, a lot of the characteristics, you know, they don't come with these excessive levels of, you know, models and theories that are just way too hard to understand. So sometimes it's actually really feasible that educators can just start to read some of the scholarly literature and hopefully we'll have more kind of real-world applied literature coming out soon as well. Um, and then it's also just a matter of, you know, trying to both for students and for staff, reduce some of this kind of stigma about well-being, stigma about, you know, um, not necessarily being as good as we might be presenting we are to others. I think that is a long-term change because that comes down to a culture change within the academic system where we don't need to put necessarily these really strong barriers up. Yeah. Um, but I think that those kind of things over time will hopefully lead to a much healthier psychosocial environment um, within higher education. And I think that that is where we're trying to move. But I also think that it will take a while to get there eventually. You know. mm. Cameron Williams, thank you. Thank you. In our market economy, user choice is held as the gold standard in almost all market sectors. But is that the case in the vet sector? Don Zellner from Charles Darwin University has used data collected by the NCVR to explore results of the progressive implementation of national competition and new public management policies favouring increased user choice. Don... How did you approach this research and what data sets did you work with? Steve, uh, I just need to make sure that uh, everyone understands that these are my personal views and not those of any organizations or committees with which I uh, operate. Mm -hmm. So having put that in, we use the National uh, Vet Provider Collection, uh, but also we use the regulatory authorities. Uh, registration details, which you can cross references the pro you can cross reference the providers with their ABN number to find out if they're for profit or not for profit, and the way in which they trade in the market. So I was particularly interested in um, Victoria because they were the first to set up a vet training market, and uh, I wanted to see what happened with the location of training providers and the way in which training provision was then delivered. Because as you pointed out at the opening, user choice 
um, is the gold standard for delivery of public services currently. It's uh, still got quite a, uh, uh, a good reputation mm-hmm. uh, amongst uh, governments wishing to deliver the best services to people. And so when the Victorian training market was set up, it particularly said that um, students and employers living in regional areas non-metro areas of Victoria would have increased choice, more access to training, and they would have a larger range of providers from which to choose. And I wanted to test that proposition. Now, I'm going to have a stab at this. I would guess that decentralization wasn't what eventuated and things centralized. Initially, there was a large increase in overall number of people in training in Victoria because they had an uncapped system. And so the numbers went up. Well, that ran out of control budgetarily. And I think that's a word. And so uh, they, the government reimposed caps, spending caps, uh, on the amount of training they would do. And then so the number of people in training started declining quite rapidly. And uh, so that declined. The growth period um, wasn't particularly interesting. It was pretty uniform across the state. So it's the decline state uh, stage of the events that I was interested in. So that's from about 2012, 2013. So what I found was I looked at the magnitude of the decline. So while the actual largest number of students dropped most in the metro area, because that's where the largest population is, I looked at the percentage of drop. And so what you found was year on year on year that the decline was much larger in regional and remote areas than it was in the cities. Largely due to the the capping of funding, do you think? Or are there other equity aspects at play? Well, I think capping because um, two-thirds of the providers, or or sorry, about three-quarters of the providers were for-profits. So that's by looking at the their uh, business data, you could see that they were for profit. And so they were going where the profits were. So the, the number of students doesn't tell you everything. So I then decided to look at um, not only the regions that were losing training, but I looked at where those training providers were headquartered. Well, again, the bulk of them were in the cities, and so virtually none were set up in remote areas, and there were only a handful, literally a handful, in regional areas, and they were very specialist. So like um, uh, wool shearing, diving uh, along the coast, and a couple of flight schools using, uh, you know, the vacant air, you know, minimal, uh, minimally occupied airspace and that. So what happen instead of getting user choice in fact because at the same time the number of the amount of funding and the number of people that the local TAFEs could train that was dropping quite rapidly so they were withdrawing from the regional areas which the RTOs ostensibly never went to the private RTOs so the people in regional areas not only lost didn't get the choice of provider that was promised, so there was no user choice uh, that was supposed to improve their outcomes and give them uh, better control over making decisions. Uh, They, in fact, lost all choice. Those who fund training and those who plan training 
need to understand what has happened because one of the problems with the issue is that many people don't la in those decision-making decision uh, positions don't last long enough in the job to see the consequences of the decisions that were made in 2009. I would hazard a guess that virtually none of them are left in a position of responsibility uh, for that. So um, I, th I think, Steve, that there's a, an issue there that if one looks at the um, distrust of the political system, which commentators uh, talked about in the recent uh, federal election, but also uh, in state elections, um, that uh, the pushback from people in those regional areas that are losing services because uh, vocational education and training would only be one. You know, they, they, they see this through a whole lot of service delivery that's been withdrawn. This is just a, another case where, uh, while the, the market worked in a macro sense in reducing overall government expenditure, you know, as a public policy objective, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it was successfully achieved. It came at the cost of delivery to regional and remote Australians, or Victorians in this case, but uh, I've done some other preliminary work, and it suggests that you've got very similar patterns in the other jurisdictions. Don Zona, Canary in a coal mine, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments, with funding provided through the Australian Government, Department of Employment, Skills, Small and Family Business. For more information, please visit ncver.edu.au.